So, good morning, everyone. I guess today's the first philosophy in the morning podcast on the way to work, just for the ones concerned about, I guess, like safety precautions. Um, I have like a wireless headset, so it's essentially it's like I'm on the phone with a hands-free device while driving to work. Um, and obviously, I don't have both headphones on, so I still can hear uh, my surroundings around me. Anyway, I guess to get started, I'll do a little introduction of, I guess, my own personal history uh, and relationship with philosophy. I was about in grade 11 when I had this teacher named Madame Shrilla, and she introduced uh, a novel study with the book uh, L'Etranger by Albert Camus, uh, or The Stranger in English. And this was... I guess my first introduction to philosophy, uh, formally anyway. I can go back maybe in the beginning of grade nine when I would always take the bus going to school and I would remember a couple of these grade 12 students talking um, in English, but I had no idea what they were talking about. It wouldn't be revealed to me until a couple of years later that they were actually talking about Plato, Aristotle, uh, essentially the the big Greek philosophers. Anyway, going back to Albert Camus' uh, L'Etranger, uh, which is a work of existentialism, that was essentially my first introduction to philosophy. And in the beginning, I found it interesting that there was something where, I guess it's the subject that... In moments where I felt like I didn't understand at all, and I would ask questions, it was then that it would be revealed that I was asking the right questions. So I guess I did understand. Uh, I just had this feeling that I didn't. Um, and that was a recurring theme, or I guess that will be a recurring theme with uh, the rest of my relationship with philosophy. There's, anytime I study philosophy, it's always maybe over 50 to around 80% of the time, I have no idea what I'm reading. Uh, and I have this feeling that I don't understand. I found it a struggle to continue reading anyway, uh, especially when I was reading Being a Nothingness uh, by Jean-Paul Sartre. And almost every single sentence, I would have no idea what this author was talking about. After reading it and after finishing it, that's when, after maybe a couple months of reflection, maybe even a couple years, uh, that's when certain ideas would start to, I guess, become more clear. Um, with Albert Camus' L'Etranger and its uh, existentialist themes, that was when I was first introduced to the idea that, I mean, the existentialist idea that there's no inherent meaning in life and that we are essentially born into the world that we did not ask to be born into. No one asks to be born. Uh, and then we become thrusted into this reality where we are, as the existentialists say, fully responsible for our actions and fully responsible for the life that we create. Uh, a lot of people think that existentialism, existentialism can be fairly depressing just because it does start uh, with the premise that there's no inherent meaning in life. 
Um, but the existentialists, especially Kemu and Saft, look at this uh, in a more positive tone. It's actually very optimistic, being that if there's no inherent meaning in life, I am completely free to create this meaning in my life. Um, usually, the existentialists will do this through responsibility. Um, even one of these uh, newer psychologists uh, named Jordan B. Peterson that I've been listening to has a similar idea that the more responsibility we take in life, the more meaningful it'll actually be for us. So after this introduction with existentialism in grade 11, uh, that was when I guess I started reading more into existentialism. I guess that actually came more of an obsession just because I was never really introduced to this whole idea that uh, I could be fully responsible for the life that I create. Um, it was sort of empowering as a kid, especially because I was really into dance and more specifically breakdancing. It's one of those dances where it's almost completely freestyling. Um, and I also have the opportunity to create my own moves and create my own style. So this actually fit really well with uh, me being introduced to existentialism. It wouldn't be until second semester of first year university where I would be able to take uh, my first formal uh, philosophy class. And this was actually a class of the ethics of war and peace. Super interesting class, but again, the recurring theme was that I had little to no idea, not only what we were reading in class, but many of the discussions uh, that we were also having in class. Um, I would be able to understand what the teacher would be saying, or I guess what the prof would be saying, but whatever my peers and the other students would speak, I would be completely lost. They would usually start by referencing a philosopher I never heard of, um, using words I never heard of, using a quality and level of French that uh, surpassed my understanding at the time. But I continued to pursue these classes anyway. I figured that if I was going to improve my French in general, I may as well use philosophy and this language that was hard to penetrate as a way to kind of work out and improve my, um, I guess, my skills in the French language. So I guess, um, yeah, it really, all it really came down to was just me constantly reading works of philosophy most of which I didn't really understand, um, but they would make sense later on. It, next would be about my last year in my first degree. I finished a bachelor's in science, majoring in biology and then minoring in philosophy. If I had the choice, I probably would have majored in philosophy or did a double major. But since my goal was to become a teacher, Philosophy was only a teachable subject if it was taken as a minor. So I guess I was kind of limited to taking it just as simply a minor. And in my third year, my graduating year of my first degree, that's when I was able to take many of my philosophy courses. And I was lucky enough to have a really good prof. Uh, his name was Antoine Cantembro. And 
he was actually the one that suggested after I graduate that I continue my research in philosophy. Uh, I had told him I'd be moving to a small town in Quebec uh, called Trois-Rivières. And he had visited there many times since he himself was from Quebec City. And he said that since I do the reading for fun anyways, I might as well continue my research in philosophy. And thanks to him, I actually dedicated many of my Sundays to just philosophy research. Later on in my stay in Quebec, it would become almost every morning where I would focus solely on doing philosophy research, whether that be reading works of philosophy, taking these notes and trying to understand them, put them into my own words, so that I can present them to non-philosophers, so that I can almost make the knowledge available within these books more accessible. And that's actually how I wrote my first book, which would be titled Dasein's Journal, a collection of philosophical thought. So with my first book, uh, The Collection of Philosophical Thought, essentially what I tried, like I mentioned before, was to kind of vulgarize and render philosophy and certain of its complex ideas more accessible to the non-philosopher. How I started this was actually through doing a sort of reflective exercise where I would look back on my own education uh, as a whole, but also my education specifically to philosophy. And I, this was called the re-education or the education of re-education. Um, essentially, it was analysis of where did the origins of certain of my philosophical ideas come from. Um, mostly, this would be looking back on who presented me with certain ideas how did I get those certain ideas? What experiences led to certain premises that I'll hold within my own philosophical thought? And once I'd pinpointed where I, these ideas or, originated from, it was then that I would be able to take the central idea of certain of these premises and then go back and find out which philosophers had first introduced this idea uh, to, I guess, Western thought, in my case. Again, it was interesting to see that I was able to reverse engineer and find out the origins of many of my philosophical thoughts. And again, since the origin of my thought did start from being introduced to existentialism, it wasn't a surprise that many of the ideas that I held were actually introduced to other philosophers that had influenced the existentialists. Actually, if I go back um, a little bit further, maybe to about the transition between my first degree and moving to Trois-Rivières, this is, was when existentialism started to become more clear to me. And that it was just a small part of philosophy. Actually, it tended to be a little bit more recent. And 
there's actually a whole nother part and a whole nother history behind the existentialist and how the idea of being completely free, life having no inherent meaning, and that we as the individual are responsible to define meaning for ourselves was actually quite a, a relatively new idea uh, compared to the whole history of philosophy. Yeah. Once I had a certain grasp of the existentialist ideas, that was when I started to go back and looking more into, I guess, the origins of like Greek philosophy and German philosophy that came beforehand. And that was, was when I started to do more studies into phenomenology, which is the study of phenomena, uh, which would be a huge influence on the existentialists. I studied a lot of Heidegger and a lot of Hegel. Um, it was actually, there's actually a part in my first book, the Dasein's Journal Collection of Philosophical Thought, where I take Heidegger's work of philosophy being in time and try to, again, make it accessible to the non-philosopher. At first I was, it was actually just selfish reasons. I wanted to read the book, Heidegger's Being in Time, mostly to say that I read it just because it's an immensely large book and it's extremely complicated. But later on, while writing these notes, I figured, hey, if I can make these notes for myself and make them accessible so that I don't have to reread the whole book, instead I can just read the notes, maybe someone who has no background philosophy could start with these notes and then possibly be able to have an easier time accessing the knowledge found within Heidegger's Being in Time. So yeah, after the first book and kind of having certain epiphanies in relation to phenomenology and study phenomena, that was when I had decided to give myself the alias of Dasein the Philosopher. Dasein being uh, the word that Heidegger uses for the existential, I guess, foundation of the human being. Um, essentially, it's a fancy word of saying human being. For Dasein, it's Da is there and Sein is being. So literally, the human being would just be the being that's there, uh, almost as the, the one that interacts with the world. Heidegger actually has a very interesting way of almost, I guess, using a notation that tries to, I'm not too sure if it's describing being in general, but it's almost as if he's using a, a specific notation that he's kind of created as a way to almost cross, create a cross section of being. How he does this is he uses a lot of hyphens, so there'll be words like being there, uh, which is Dasein, uh, or the being there in front, uh, which is Dasein in front of the world. Um, there's being in the world, there's also being in front of the world. Uh, he'll use many of these words, and 
I feel like what he was trying to do was be able to take complex nuances that it's found within being and all its layers and try to give it a simple word to englobe all of those uh, ideas. Anyway, after learning about phenomenology and once I had grasped what it really was, uh, what it was trying to point to, before that, actually, when I was still doing my degree in sciences, I was obsessed with the idea of how do I integrate phenomenology into my biological studies. I did a lot of dissections and a lot of um, experiments while doing my science degree. And since phenomenology was a study of phenomena, I thought it was, it should have been very easy and almost obvious, I guess, that I should be able to integrate certain of the analytical styles or methods used by the phenomenologists in my own studies in science. I had a hard time integrating the two, and it wasn't until I'd found out about the works of Carl Jaspers, who was originally a doctor and psychologist, and he later became a phenomenologist. And he had actually already done what I was trying to do. He had successfully integrated the use of phenomenology in the empirical sciences. That was actually an eye-opening moment just because I already had this idea, I guess, embedded in my earlier studies in philosophy that the philosophers that came before me had already figured many of the problems I was actually dealing with, the philosophical issues. It would just be a matter of fact of finding who these philosophers were and what methods they had used to solve or at least try to solve certain philosophical issues that I'd, I'd been dealing with. So I guess after my return to Winnipeg, uh, and after I had published my book, uh, Collection of Philosophical Thought, this is when I started to, I guess, look at more of the utility of philosophy. So having all these theories is nice, and having all these different uh, models does help with, I guess, making the decision between good and bad. It does help with ethics. It's very, ethics is very, I find it more concrete in the beginning. uh, And it was easy to find its utility, but I wanted to find the utility of philosophy in general. And that was actually when certain lessons that would help me writing my second book would start appearing in front of me. Anyway, I guess that's it for the first uh, Philosophy in the Morning podcast. I'm here at work now, so I'm going to make some coffee, start prepping my lessons, or I get to prep my class. And yeah, hope you guys have a good day. So it's a dies on a philosopher, and I'll see you guys tomorrow morning. See ya.